Brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be upon you all. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept um, yet another day in Mecca. And I pray you found uh, this morning's visit to the Kiswa uh, place, the place where they make the cloth of the Kaaba insightful, as well as um, the museum of the Haramain. Um, inshallah there will be some more uh, exhibitions that we will visit related to uh, matters of our religion uh, especially in Medina uh, because around Masjid al-Nabawi there's many uh, insightful exhibitions and in fact recently uh, they've opened an exhibition related to the Quran which is very insightful and uh, answers some of the questions that I received from the group pertaining to the script of Uthman uh, which is known as Rasm al-Uthmani which is uh, the script uh, of the Quran and its development over the years and um, how it was readable then and how it evolved uh, so it could be readable uh, to us even today so inshallah you'll get those answers um, uh, over there in Medina and that's why I purposely avoided answering uh, that particular question. They also have a Sira exhibition uh, next to the Haram in Medina. They have another exhibition related to uh, the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then there's a museum underneath the Haram. Uh, I don't know if we have capacity to uh, visit that one. Uh, it depends on days and time. And that's why you will come to see very quickly that five days in Mecca and five days in Medina is just not enough. Especially when you come with the learning uh, aspect of it. Um, and that particular museum talks about uh, the grave of the Prophet wasallam as well and then how it became part of the masjid when it originally wasn't and uh, what the scholars of Islam suggested to uh, the rulers at the time to mitigate the difficulties of uh, the grave becoming part of the masjid. So it actually gives you insights in the in, uh, uh, with regards to uh, the matters that you can't see because it's obviously housed now by a fence and a wall and other matters but it explains the inside but also another good museum that you should try and go to um, and I'm mentioning this because of the museum we went to today is uh, Dar al-Madina Dar al-Madina is a, is a newish museum I say newish because it's been around now a few years but it's still newish in terms of uh, people's knowledge of it uh, and this is, uh, is far from the Haram, well, uh, relatively uh, far, but not uh, far in terms of uh, what you guys consider far when living in London, I suppose. Huh? I think about 20 riyals will get you there, about a 10, 8 minute taxi ride to Dar al-Madina. This uh, museum is a, it's a private museum and um, to my knowledge it's private. They have models of Medina and the Hijrah and the battles. Uh, uh, very very unique models uh, from the seerah from the time of the Prophet wasallam, and they have guides in different languages so you get an English guide and they explain to you certain things so you can actually vision the movement of the Prophet wasallam during the hijrah there's lights telling you his exact route out of, Madi out of Mecca and where the Quraysh went and all these insights which really uh, paints um, a vibrant picture in your mind so if you do get a chance and you should. And if you have breakfast, for example, and then catch a cab at about 8 a.m., 8.30, 9 a.m. Um, uh, uh, to the place, that's good. If you go as a group, that's even nice because uh, they have a guide who will take you as a group through. If you don't have a group, then they sort of wait or make you wait until 
uh, more people gather for the language that you speak. So if you go uh, as groups, um, it will be highly beneficial, inshallah. And then we will visit Mount Uhud, etc. And I will try and highlight uh, certain realities of that battle. Tayyip, uh, yesterday we spoke about nurture versus nature, if we can summarize it. Uh, the talk was uploaded and I sent the link uh, to Brother Sajid from Tazkiyah and he will, inshallah, send it to you. Today we want to talk about an event related to the Kaaba. But before that we want to hear some ayat about uh, this event from the Quran from uh, young Ahmed Umar, uh, inshallah. He's going to recite from us uh, from Surah Al-Feel. Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-feel. Alright. read from um, Surah Al-Feel. And this is the incident we want, to, we want to talk about today, especially since we uh, were discussing the Kaaba and the cloth of the Kaaba this morning. So this particular Surah is depicting for us the event of the, of the elephant, or it came to be known as the event of the elephant which took place during the year of the elephant. Uh, before the calendar came to be, um, years were known by events. So it would be said that such and such a person passed away so many years after that year or was born so many years before a particular year. This was how the Arabs um, understood uh, their timescales. They would attach it to famous events. And uh, this year of the elephant became a very famous event, uh, not just for the Quraysh, but for the Arabs in general, because uh, it entailed a matter pertaining to the Kaaba. So uh, in a lot of the books of history, you would find this mention that this event took place so many years before the, before the year of the elephant or after the year of the elephant or such and such personality or so and so was born um, after the year of the elephant by so many years and so on and so forth. And uh, this event occurred during the time of the Prophet's grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. And uh, in the same year that our Prophet wasallam was born, and thus it is said he was born in the year of the elephant. So uh, this particular event um, is a mighty event and it has a surah in the Quran which is enough for us to realize that it is a mighty event because Allah revealed a surah about it uh, or about a portion of it and also in terms of the theme, blast from the past, seerah in the 21st century in terms of our time today, we have lessons that we can take from that particular uh, event and apply in our lives uh, today. Now to summarize this incident, basically there was a deputy king of Habasha in Yemen. And this king became jealous of the Kaaba for the simple fact that the Kaaba became a meeting place. And we know that the pilgrimage uh, was ineffective because it was from the time of Ibrahim alayhi salam. So uh, the Kaaba was a meeting place for uh, different Arab tribes and then they had seasons of trade that they would call it and these seasons of trade would happen during uh, 
the seasons, the season known as uh, of, as as Hajj. So this particular uh, vice king, he decided to try and um, replicate um, what he understood to be the reason why people gathered in Mecca. So he said, you know what? He was going to build a prominent place of worship where he was. So he decided to build a massive church in Sana'a. Now obviously the Habasha kingdom uh, is predominantly known as a Christian kingdom. And we know Al-Najashi, he was the Christian king, the just Christian king, and he was the king of Habasha. So Sana'a is uh, a place uh, uh, in, in, in Yemen, and he decided he was going to build this massive church there, and then that church would become a means for people to gather. Now, his intention was very clear, right? Uh, he wanted to persuade the Arabs that come here. You guys are going to this uh, Kaaba in the middle of the desert. It's just a simple cube. It's small. We're going to build um, a dynamic uh, church, place of worship. So why don't you guys shift your trade and come and meet here instead of meeting at the Kaaba? Now someone from the children of Kinana heard about what they felt was insanity. So they heard about this insanity. That what on earth is this? And he felt that he couldn't hold himself. He had to do something about it. He had to do something about it. So he decided to travel all the way to Sana'a. And that's the distance from Mecca, especially when we're talking about using uh, the modes of transport of those days. But he actually makes this journey. Right? This is a tiresome journey. It's a costly journey. Uh, you, you, know, you need to take provisions with you for this journey. You need to mark your routes accordingly for this journey. Make sure you pass through areas that have irrigation and wells, for example, so that you can replenish on your resources. Your animal can drink, for example. So it's not a simple thing. It's not something where you just get out of bed and say, this is what I'm going to do. Right? This needs a, a, a lot of courage, a lot of planning. He decides he's going to go through with the journey. What is the purpose of his journey? He wants to go and stain the walls of this church. Simple. He feels hurt of this attack on the Kaaba and his place and, 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 and what the Quraysh had and so on and so forth. So he actually makes this journey, puts all this effort into place for the sake of his misguidance, of course, his idol worshipper, right? Puts all this into place to go and stain the walls of this church. Now, Abraha, this vice king, he was very angered by this. This was an attack on his honor. Right? An attack on his leadership. And this was not something he was going to let slide. Right? Because if you let something like this slide, then obviously the people who you're supposed to rule over, they begin to lose respect in you. And we see this today. Today, if somebody uh, blows up something, then there's a retaliation strike. Or if somebody shows their, their, their military might, then another country will show their military might. Sometimes we say, what is all this? It feels like nursery kind of uh, squabbles. But no, in the mindset of leaders, it's a different mindset to the mindset of those who don't lead. Right? They see things from a different perspective. So he had to take action. And his action was to put together 60,000 soldiers. Including... Elephants, several of them. Why? Because he could. And he decided to travel to the Kaaba with his army and his elephants until they reached the eastern parts of the Haram. And 
when he reached the eastern parts of the Haram, he happened to fall upon the wealth of the Quraysh or some of the wealth of the Quraysh. So he thought, I might as well usurp this wealth as well. Whilst I'm here, why not? Right? We, he's obviously here to destroy the Kaaba. But whilst we're at it, right? Let's take their wealth as well. So he does this. Now, from this wealth was 200 camels that belonged to Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib was seen as the, the head of Mecca and the custodian of the Kaaba. Right? The, the Quraysh were respected amongst the Arab tribes for the simple fact that they were seen as people who looked after the Hujjaj, they were seen as people who look, looked after the affairs of the Kaaba. So the other tribe, Arab tribes, even though they, they had their jealousy issues, there was this tribal culture, my tribe, your tribe, you know, we see this in some parts of Asia. Right? Some people have this, you know, uh, even from the earlier generation who settled even in the West, you see this, that, you know, you have to marry someone from this tribe, you can't marry someone from that tribe, right? This is the, the uh, I'm trying to just relate back to some of the youth issues I get, right? Uh, some of the youth, they write in to me with these issues. They say, look, my, I grew up in the UK, I'm eating fish and chips, right? She's eating fish and chips, our culture is UK culture, but now I'm being told I got to marry... Uh, from back home and it should be the same tribe and the same sub-tribe and the same sub-sub-tribe and so you, you know these things existed but despite all this when it came to when it came to the Kaaba uh, and the Quraysh's efforts towards the Kaaba and the Quraysh's efforts towards the pilgrims everybody had a unanimous uh, sympathy and feeling of uh, warmth towards the Quraysh uh, for this so Abdul Abraham Abraha took, uh, you know, 200 camels of, uh, meaning he took a lot of wealth from them, from this wealth, 200 camels of Abdul Muttalib. So, Abdul Muttalib decided that, look, I'm the head, let me go negotiate, let me go and at least speak to him. Right? There's no way we can face an army of 60,000, right? Makkah's a valley as well. But at least, let me go and speak to him. Now, Abraha, because of this honor the Quraysh had, for reasons that I explained just now, through the whispers, he came to develop a sense of respect for Abdul Muttalib, even though he never met him. Right? Because this is the head of the Quraysh, this is what they do for the Kaaba, right? A lot of people gather here, they look after them, this is a success story. So even though he didn't meet him, he had respect for him. So when he heard that Abdul Muttalib is coming to see you, he stood up for Abdul Muttalib. Right? He's the king, but he's standing up. His, his people are noticing this. That look how he's, you know, we stand up for him, but he's standing up for Abdul Muttalib. And uh, he gave uh, Abdul Muttalib uh, the sense of, uh, or permission to have presence in front of him. So Abdul Muttalib comes in and Abraha is expecting something great in terms of speech, in terms of, you know, uh, the speech of leaders. At least speak about the Kaaba. But Abdul Muttalib says nothing about the Kaaba. He says, I've really come here to ask for my 200 camels back. So this was a bit of, uh, what, do we, what do we say in the English language? Yani when you're expecting a climax and the opposite happens. Alright? So the opposite happened. Uh, so Abraha actually became infuriated. And uh, he sort of scolded Abdul Muttalib and said, I expected you to come and talk about the Kaaba because this is your way and the way of your forefathers and the reason why you have the honor and the respect, but yet you're coming to talk to me about your camels. So Abdul Muttalib says, oh, sorry, uh, you know, yeah, I've come to talk to you about the camels because the camels are mine. But as for the Kaaba, it has its own Lord and the Lord, will the, the Lord of the Kaaba will protect it. Right? And this is, this is jotted down in history. 
right? That even in their disbelief and their idol worship, etc., 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 the lesson we learn from this is that they knew who Allah was. They didn't doubt the lordship of Allah. They just associated partners in His lordship by asking idols for some specific matters specific to Allah in terms of the realm of His lordship. And then also they worshipped others than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they had this concept of shirk. And that's why Allah tells us in the Quran, That if you ask them who created the heavens and the earth, meaning these are lordship qualities, they will say Allah. Allah says without doubt they will say Allah. So it's Allah, but what are you doing? So they understood this. And Ibn Taymiyyah has a, an amazing rahimahullah. Uh, He's uh, one, one of the great scholars of, of, of Islam. He has an amazing deduction from this. He says that the Quraysh, they... Oh, he takes it back. He goes, he goes, it's from human nature. The human beings have an innate desire to survive. They have this innate desire to survive. So, they were happy to take Allah as a protector. And protection is from the Lordship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they were happy to accept Him as, as the Lord. Why? Because they had this, it's human nature to want to survive. So it's tangible to accept the Lord as the protector because that means you have protection and that entails your survival. So they had a greater need for survival than they need to worship one Allah. So they were willing to accept Him as the Lord but not accept him as the only one worthy of worship. But this doesn't mean they didn't practice shirk and polytheism even in matters pertaining to lordship because they would ask their idols for rain, for example, for children, for example. And these matters are from the qualities of lordship. These matters are specific to Allah in the realm of rububiyyah. Right? I don't want to digress, but just to, 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 to highlight this point. So in the Arabic language, he basically said, إِنَّ لِلْبَيْتِ رَبَّنْ سَيَمْنَعُهُ Rabb, he used the term Rabb, this is Lordship, Rububiyyah, and Allah is the Rabb. He says, indeed the house has a Lord who will protect it. So Abraha was defiant. And the Quraysh saw that, hey listen, this uh, negotiation is not working. This thing is happening, no doubt. They decided to run to the mountain areas. And as you can see, Mecca is surrounded by these mountains. Uh, these mountains uh, existed uh, from a long time. This region is known to uh, have a volcanic history. Um, and they decided to take refuge by the mountains and said, let Abraha do what Abraha wants to do. Now Abraha then decided to take his mission further and basically uh, as he moved with his uh, army and his elephants, they got to a place and space where the elephants knelt down. The elephants knelt down. They refused to move. Subhanallah. Right? And you sort of look back at the horses of Fir'aun that were apprehensive to enter uh, to enter the sea when it split. When Fir'aun was announcing, look, I'm the Lord, this, the water has split for me. There was apprehension, as some of uh, the historians mention, of these animals entering uh, this space. And this is uh, a sign that animals, they can perceive adab, right? So these uh, elephants knelt down. They refused to move. And Abraha ordered for them to be uh, whipped to get them to move and they decided they, they, they refused uh, uh, to move and they basically by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Abraha and his army became camped at this place and then Allah sent these ababir these uh, birds with pebbles in their mouth and they launched an aerial strike 
Eh? Talk about aerial strikes today. They, uh, these are the armies of Allah. They launched an aerial strike and uh, as we heard in the surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defeated this army. Now, no doubt, the Quraysh, they were the biggest beneficiaries from this. Because the Arabs, they respected them. But after this, the respect went you know, through the roof, if I can use colloquial English. Why? Because all the Arabs knew that there was no way anyone could beat this army. And birds came to help these Quraysh, and this tribe is a special tribe. And this tribe enjoyed privileges as a result of this. From the privileges is that even the desert bandits, they would not touch the caravans of the Quraysh. The Quraysh had their, 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 their famous caravans that would go to Syria and go to Yemen. Uh, Allah says it in the same surah, Rihlat ash-shita wa saif li-ilafi Quraysh. Sorry, in the surah after, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashabi fil Allah brings our attention to the caravans of the Quraysh. That they had a caravan that would go in the summer, a famous caravan, a huge caravan, and a huge caravan that would go in the winter. And they would and, 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 and the merchandise would come into Mecca, and Mecca would become this hub for trade. So what does Allah say after this, when He reminds him of these caravans? He says, فَلْيَعْبُدُ رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ So worship the Lord of this house. Why? الَّذِي أَطْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوءٍ The one who protected you from hunger. وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفٍ And protected you from fear. Protected you from fear. And that's what the scholars deduce from this. That the two greatest fears of man, or mankind, is loss of security and hunger. These are the two biggest things we fear. We work for the sake of these two things. We migrate for the sake of these two things. Food and security. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is highlighting to the Quraysh the biggest blessings that they, get, that they were given with these caravans. Right? That went. Because these caravans, it was known that when the caravans of the Quraysh passed, the desert bandits would not dare touch it. The desert bandits were there. And we spoke about this yesterday. That, you know, that Arabia was between two civilizations. But... And, and civilize, uh, these two civilizations saw them to be desert bandits. They would usurp people's caravans, people's property, and so on and so forth. But no one dare touch the caravans of the Quraysh. No one dare mess with them. After birds came from the sky to, to damage an army with elephants and 60,000 in number, don't mess around with the property of the Quraysh. They were the biggest beneficiaries from this. So this is basically um, uh, the, the, the event of the field. And the books of history and tafsir, they say that this particular event took place in the month of Muharram, right? Which uh, would be equivalent, and Allah knows best, to the end of February or the beginning of March. And we're in February now, right? So the end of February or the beginning of March in the year 571 after the death of Isa, alayhi salam. And it is said to have happened a month and a half before the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, as I said, these lessons can only be complete if we tie these lessons to some practicalities uh, in our time today. And that's what we want from this. We want, to, we want to make the seerah applicable today. And the seerah is applicable today. right? Um, and if you do go home from this trip, then go home with the realization that the seerah is not just reading history, but it's reading history which we can benefit from in our day today. And we can learn from the life of the Prophet ﷺ and be guided today as a result of that life. Now there's several lessons. I'm not going to share with you all of them because I want to keep uh, our time together true to uh, the time slot that we have for this particular session. So I'm going to try and share uh, those lessons that I feel um, are the most uh, appropriate. From uh, the lessons that I would like to share with you uh, related 
uh, to this um, event that happened um, over a thousand years ago uh, is um, or the lessons are as follows number one number one to practice your religion you need effort you need effort and it doesn't necessarily mean that you always will be comfortable Yes, Islam won't ask from you that which is impossible for you, but it will ask from you that which might need you to exert some effort. You might need to wake up for Fajr in a cold winter's morning. And you might need to observe wudu with cold water which won't harm you, but is nonetheless cold and not your preference. Right? Um, this is a reality. This is a reality. And like this, ponder over other matters of Islam in your life that you feel is difficult but it's part and parcel of the religion it's not impossible for you to do but you might find it difficult but that's part and parcel of life on this earth with regards to our journey to Allah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes our journey to him like the journey of a farmer tilling his land under the hot sun before the rains arrive Allah says, إِنَّكَ كَادِحٌ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ كَدْحًا That your journey to Allah is similar to the farmer tilling his land under the hot sun, moving from point A to point B, then coming back, then moving and coming back. Not with machinery, with his, with his, with his pick. He's tilling this land. Is it easy? No, it isn't. It's difficult. But he knows if he does it and does it well, then when the rains come, he will reap the fruits of his labor. This is how Allah has described our journey to him. But it's not a difficulty that makes us sad. It's a difficulty that brings happiness. Like this farmer. He's not tilling his land in depression. He's tilling his land with motivation. It's difficult, yes, but he's motivated to wake up the next day and continue. Why? Because he's dreaming about the rainfall that will come and hit the land and the fruits and produce that will come and the benefits that he will reap from it for him and his family. And we think back to the conversation of the Prophet ﷺ with Musa. When Allah gave him 50 salah and Musa said, go back and get a reduction for your people won't manage this. And after it was reduced to five, Musa said, go back and get a reduction for your people won't manage this. And the Prophet ﷺ fell shy and he goes, inshallah, they will, they will manage this. Right? And then Allah's mercy upon the ummah, that even though it's five, he promised to reward us the rewards of 50. That for every one you get the rewards of 10. So if you observe 5, it's as if you prayed 50 salahs that day. And then if you come to Mecca and observe those salah, it's 100,000 for every salah. Subhanallah. It is a difficulty, but a difficulty that we motivated to pursue. Ramadan, Laylatul Qadr. You spend the whole night, you think I won't sleep this night. But Allah gives you the reward of having worshipped Him for 83 years plus. You are motivated not to sleep. But it's only one night. Allah doesn't say do it every night. Search for it ten nights. But not every night of the year. Because that's impossible for you. But Allah might ask you to do something that's possible. It might be difficult. But it's possible. Fast the month of Ramadan. One month. Don't fast two months. One month is obligatory. It's difficult for you to leave food during the day for one month. But it's possible. Allah will never ask from you that which is impossible. You've got to make an effort, brothers and sisters. 
if this non-Muslim, idol worshipper, can travel a journey, this is where I'm deducing the lesson from, marking his route, making sure I go through where the wells are, subhanallah, carrying provision, getting on his ride, he might have to deal with desert storms. We know the desert dust storms, they're not easy. Right? I live in the middle of the desert in Riyadh. Riyadh is a city in the middle of the desert. When the sandstorm hits, sometimes it's so bad, the day turns into night, we have to switch on the lights. Because it engulfs the city, the sun, sunlight doesn't get through. A person is willing to brave all this to go stain the, the walls of that church in defense of what? <laughs> what he believed was his religion and his honor. He made effort for misguidance. So what do you have to do for guidance, brothers and sisters in Islam? Right? Ponder. Just ponder. And subhanallah, I was thinking about the fact that Allah gave the Prophet wasallam 50 prayers instead of 5. When Allah knew in His divine knowledge it will end up being 5 and He will reward us 50 for the 5. Why 50? Ponder over it. It's a lesson from Allah to you, O servant of Allah. That Allah doesn't want you to just be a Muslim who prays five times a day. He wants more from you. That yes, pray five times a day, but use the other time that you would have spent praying had it still been 50 to go build Jannah in other amazing ways. And we spoke yesterday about my vision of you being ignited communities that benefit humanity. Don't just settle before the least. That I pray five times a day and I'll just fast 30 days in Ramadan. Yes, that's fine. Then Islam doesn't nurture us to be minimum individuals. It doesn't. It nurtures us upon the platform and paradigm of excellence. That don't settle for the minimum. The Prophet ﷺ told Abu Hurairah, he says, Al-Sani Khalili bi thalath. Abu Hurairah says, My best friend, closest friend, intimate friend, taught me, advised me to three things. One of them was what? To look at people who have less than you when it comes to matters of this life. And look at people who worship Allah better than you when it comes to matters of the Akhir. Because if you do this, you won't belittle Allah's blessings upon you. And you won't settle for the salah that you pray when somebody's doing more. You will develop an ambition to push. Today, you tell someone, brother, you know, you pray three salah, there's five. Because at least I prayed three, he prays two. Say, brother, go to the masjid. Say, at least I'm praying. Man, he doesn't even pray. Say, why do you want to look at people who do less than you? This goes against the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Put some exercise. Put some exercise into your religion, right? As they say, you can't get fit by taking a pill. If it was that easy, everyone would be fit, right? You can't go to Jannah by just knocking on the door of Jannah. It's not going to open for you. Huh? One of my teachers said when I was young that Jannah is not your grandmother's house. You knock on it, the door opens with a smile, <laughs> right? No, no, there's uh, at the end of, of Surah Zumar, Allah tells us about the guardian of Jahannam and the, and, and the gatekeepers of Jannah. And the gatekeepers of Jannah will say, Salamun alaykum dibtu. They will greet you with the salam and, and congratulate you. Why? Why? For that which you used to do. Not for the daydreaming that you used to do. Not for the discussions you used to have over coffee, you know, the ummah needs to be like this today. This is what we're good for, huh? We're having meetings about the ummah, you know? Why? I, I wish things could be like this. I wish things could be like that. I wish things could be... This is where the ummah is. 
Huh? Sipping our coffee, which we're so fussy about. It must be this cream, that cream. I come to the UK. Where did the UK brothers and sisters get this habit of coffee from? Hey, you drink tea. Now you're drinking coffee. The American culture came in. And then it should have so many sugars and the cream. And it should, be, it should go through this filter and that filter. And now you're sipping your, the coffee, which you spend so much time, mashallah. You put so much effort. We put effort in that. And then we sip it nicely saying, yeah, why don't these ulamas do this? You know, these ulama, why don't these imams do that? You know, why doesn't the sheikh at the madrasa do that for my child? Why doesn't the government do this for... We're only good for pointing fingers. This is where the ummah is. This is where we're at. We're not willing to put any effort. But for the dunya, we put effort. We do. Like and how our coffee should be. Right? Nowadays, you don't take somebody's coffee order, you need an iPad, you need a tablet, because it's so technical. They build apps for this now. We've taken the dunya to the next level. And our knowledge of it. As Allah says, يَعْلَمُونَ ظَاهِرًا مِنَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا Allah tells us about the disbelievers. They know the, the matters of this life in an amazing way. But when it comes to the akhirah, they are, they are in, in, in heedless. you got to put an effort. And that is why the Prophet wasallam taught us, أَلَا إِنَّ سِلْعَةَ اللَّهِ غَالِيَةَ The merchandise of Allah is expensive. Why did he say this? Because, you know, if we look at, we find, it's called المنطق الاقتصادي. If you look at the Quran and the Sunnah, the Quran and the Sunnah has many instructions motivating us to worship Allah better, but using the language of economics, using the language of trade. Allah says, هَلْ أَدُلُّكُمْ عَلَى تِجَارَةً Should I point you out to a trade that will save you from the hellfire, from a severe punishment? The Prophet ﷺ says, indeed the merchandise of Allah is expensive. He uses uh, the language of economics. Why? Because human beings, they will study economics. It matters to their dunya. So perhaps then they will read the Quran and, and they'll find the speech relatable to them. A speech that will help shift their paradigms. So brothers and sisters, this is a big point. But the lesson we need to take from brothers and sisters, put some effort. You know? Don't tell me, Shaykh, you know, tawaf, I can't do tawaf. Why? Because they blocked the, 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 the mataf. You know, I have to do it on the top floor. The top floor, it takes longer. They put some effort, Habib, mashallah. You have feet, you have energy, you have food, mashallah. You're staying in a five-star hotel, right? And then if you can't, mashallah, there's wheelchairs at your exposure. Allah has given you wealth. Go and do the tawaf. Don't look for the ease. So, Shaykh, am I allowed to pretend that I'm a muhrim by wearing the ihram? So I cheat the, the, the people at the entrance so I can go in and then do the quick 20-minute tawaf. Why do you want to be an ummah looking for shortcuts like this? Why? Oh, servants of Allah. We shouldn't be these people. You can't cheat Allah. Like Allah tells us about the disbelievers. The best animals, they sacrifice for their gods. And the rubbish meat, then they say, this is for Allah. Why, why do you want to do this for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? For Allah, you want the cheapest, biggest shortcut. Big, look for all the rebate that you can get from the fatwa. You want to drain the, the, the sheikh. Huh? Allah... Why? We shouldn't be these people. So the first lesson, brothers and sisters, if you want uh, greatness, work for it. Right? This is the dunya. This is not jannah. You, push, you blink and wish and things happen. Here, you got to work, work, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you jannah. Make an effort for the deen. The second lesson that we learn uh, from this uh, particular lesson, or the second biggest lesson that we learn is that our tongues make us or break us. And where do we get this point from? From Abdul Muttalib's meeting with, with this with Ab, with Abraha, because Abraha, 
had this perception of him and respected him. But as soon as Abdul Muttalib opened his mouth, what happened to the respect? Disappeared. Our tongues make us or break us, brothers and sisters. And today, who knows how we use our tongues? Because this tongue, it can take you to Jannah, as Allah says about the people of Jannah, وَهُدُوا إِلَى الطَّيِّبِ مِنَ الْقَوْلِ Huh? Allah says the people of Jannah when they lived on earth they were guided to a goodly word. But the same tongue can take you to the hellfire. Same tongue. If you use it to backbite. If you use it to slander. If you use it to lie. If you use it to cheat and deceive. You lie about your cost price to make the trade. Where's that tongue landing you? Not into... It's breaking you. Right? It's breaking you. And what's amazing is subhanallah, Allah helped us with regards to this because Allah gave us only one tongue. Can you imagine if Allah gave us two tongues? La ilaha illallah. Allah gave us one tongue, but He gave us two ears. We should listen double the amount that we speak. And in front of the one tongue, Allah puts two gates. Your teeth and your lips. If you shut your teeth, you've blocked your tongue. You shut your lips in front of your teeth, it's really locked. So in front of one tongue, Allah puts two gates. In front of two ears, how many gates do you have? Are your ears closed or open? You have to block your ears if you don't want to listen. <laughs> right? But they're naturally open. But today, subhanAllah, we speak more than we listen. And thus our tongues can land us in the wrong place. There's a story about Imam Abu Hanifa in relation to the tongue and this whole concept of how the tongue makes you or breaks you. It says one day he used to, he would, he, Abu Hanifa, when he was teaching his students, he would relax because there was a rapport between him and the students. So one day he sat with his legs stretched out and he was teaching the lesson. And then a man with, a white, with white hair, white beard walked into the gathering. So immediately Abu Hanifa brought his legs in and he sat with the, the normal formal procedure. Not stretching his legs out because someone looks very respectful, perception, white hair, white beard, walks in, you feel this is uh, somebody very noble. So the man came and sat and he's listening to the lecture. So he just sat quietly, listening. And I ask you to think about this in your life. How many times have you been in a gathering and someone comes and sits down and they're quiet and they're just observing and you can't read them. You just feel that this person is, is, is a deep person. This is a person you want to respect. Has that not happened to you? Right? If not, it will happen one day. Right? It's happened. But you feel like that until when? Until he opens his mouth. As soon as he opens his mouth, you say, nah, khalas. As soon as he opened his mouth, you read the person. This person, nah, nah, he's, he's totally somebody else. This person sat in front of Abu Hanifa. And at the end, he put up his hand. Finally, he had a question. Abu Hanifa stopped the lesson and said, let me see his question. Ask, go ahead with your question. He goes, I have a very important question. He says, you, you're teaching us about Ramadan. He says, I have a question about this. Because you said when Ramadan comes, you have to fast. But on Eid day, you're not allowed to fast. Hanifa said, yes, that's true. He says, what happens if the first of Ramadan happens to fall on the 10th of Dhul Hijjah? What should, what should I do? 10th of Dhul Hijjah is day of Eid. So what happens if the first of Ramadan falls on the 10th of Dhul Hijjah? I'm looking at some of you right now. You guys are thinking, hmm, that's a very good question, right? What should we do? By you, I'm just joking. 
obviously doesn't make sense this question this guy opened his mouth what do you think Abu Hanifa now learned about him this is not a alim this is jahil so Abu Hanifa he says if the first of Ramadan happens to fall on the 10th of Dhul Hijjah then it's time for Abu Hanifa to stretch his feet out again <laughs> right why because he, immediately the perception changed of the person so realize from this brothers and sisters how your tongue either makes you or breaks you. Don't let it run riot. Don't. Don't let it run riot. And one of the solutions you can take back today with you is don't visit people for more than five minutes. Because really, nowadays with WhatsApp, with Facebook, everybody knows everything about you. So you have nothing to talk about. If you sit for more than five minutes, you might be doing ghibah. You might be lying. You might be doing some gossip. You might be doing namima. You might be slandering somebody. The person knows about you. Go meet them. Yes, because the bodies must meet. It's important. Meet them. Assalamu alaikum. How are you? Hope you well. Uh, can I get you anything, anything to drink? Yes, a cup of water. Alhamdulillah. They offer you something more. No problem. But don't put them out of the way. After five minutes, you leave. Alhamdulillah. You've, 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 you've practiced uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the social etiquettes of, of the deen and you've protected yourself from being a victim of your time. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the understanding. Ameen. The last thing, brothers and sisters, that we'll take from this in terms of the important lessons is the personality trait versus the character trait. And we get this again from Abdul Muttalib with Najashi. Because Najashi, before he met Abdul Muttalib, he only knew about him from the personality. What he heard people say. You know, you, you know someone famous, you don't know them, but you feel what you feel towards them. Why? Because of how everybody else talks about it. It's personality. Right? The personality trait. And then we have the character trait. The character trait is who you are truly as a human being. Alright? Uh, in a hadith, it's disputed in terms of its authenticity, but its meaning is true. The Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said, Inna Allah la yanduru ila suwarikum wa la ila ajsadikum wa lakin yanduru ila kulubikum wa a'malikum. That Allah doesn't look at you based on your body and your appearance. He looks at you based on your heart and your deeds. Allah doesn't judge you based on the personality. He doesn't judge you based on the show. He doesn't judge you based on your Facebook posts. Hmm? He judges you based on who you are. And we live in a highly volatile personality age. It's the age of the woods. The Hollywoods, the Bollywoods, the Tiger Woods. Huh? It's all woods, right? <laughs> it's all a show. It's all media. It's all TV. It's all branding. It's all PR. Right? It's all HD full HD, half HD, whatever, it's all, it's all the show. Don't become a victim of being, a, bi a victim of being the show. Where your, where people understand you based on brand clout. When we talk about the brand, who's, what's your brand? Huh? People judge you based on your appearance, what photos you put out. You're a guy putting uh, photos of the every meal you eat, people say, oh, this is who this person is. Okay? People judge you based on your show, right? Ensure you don't become a victim of it. How do you become a victim of it? Where you start believing yourself to be a good person because of how people perceive you. Because of the show that you put out for them. Right? People saw your lounge was very clean, so they thought he's a very clean person. They didn't open your bedroom and look at your drawers and your floor. See how tidy that is. Right? But Allah, He looks at the drawers and He looks at the doors that are shut that you don't want the people to see. 
So don't be that person, brothers and sisters in Islam, where you feel you're a pious person, but you're not. And Shaitan wants to put us in this space. He wants to put us in this space. And I've got an article online called Transformers, which was published on Islam 21C a few weeks ago. Google it, read it. Transformers Sayyid Umar, it'll pop up. Have a read about it. About feeling that you're pious because of casual lectures you listen to on YouTube and conferences that you attend. Because you supposedly like a certain uh, uh, teacher out there and you make it a point to listen to, uh, listen to all his talks, ask yourself, why are you listening to it? What have you learned from it? Have you transformed as a result of it? Ask yourself the real questions. Before shaitan puts you in a comfortable space where you feel pious because you just listen to it. Whether you learn from it, you didn't learn from it, whatever. At least I wasn't listening to music. You know that. But you shouldn't be listening to music. Don't make yourself comfortable on that level. Right? And I met someone in the Haram randomly in my last trip. And they said, oh, I listened to Sheikh Fulan. I said, mashallah, why do you listen to him? He goes, no, he just sounds nice. And, you know, the way uh, he explains things. And, you know, very relatable. Uh, it just sounds, it's very focused on the external factors. I said, that's very good. So how many hours do you think you've listened to this person? Oh, hundreds. All right. Tell me three things you've learned from him. And I kid you not, he was stuck. And he's a medical doctor, heart surgeon, very intelligent person. And you know what he said to me? He goes, you know what? That's a very valid, good point. I said, so, <laughs> I mean, if you're listening to something, so surely you want to be learning something from it, right? Don't get lost, brothers and sisters, in the personality climate of the world, which came to be after World War I and has grown and grown and grown to the century that we are in and is in a, in a big way today. And teach it to your kids. Teach them to be true to who they are. That's the best thing that will save them on the day of Qiyamah. Because Allah will not reward you because you look like you prayed. He will reward you if you actually prayed. He won't reward you because... You, you stayed, you looked like you fasted. He will reward you if you actually fast. You can be hiding and eating. People think, MashaAllah, I get my daughter married to this person. Huh? He's fasted Mondays and Thursdays. You know, Allah knows whether you're really fasting or you're not. Right? So be sure with this, brothers and sisters. Much can be said, but inshallah, I leave you with these three points to add on to the points that we shared yesterday. Uh, I don't mean for these sessions to be too serious, but in the same breath, I don't mean, I don't, uh, I, I need to value your time and respect your time. You're investing your time coming to these programs. You could be reading Quran, you could be doing Tawaf. So you need to take from uh, these little sessions that we have, uh, that which inshallah would be high impact in your life. Um, everything corrected is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and He's perfect and any mistakes are from myself and shaitan. And I seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'i.